0: Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair.
1: Chapter 67, which contains births, marriages, and deaths. Whatever Becky's private plan for Dobbin was, she thought that the secret might keep... Indeed, she was not interested about anybody's welfare so much as about her own, and had many things to consider which concerned her a great deal more than Major Dobbins' happiness. She found herself in comfortable quarters, surrounded by good-natured simple people such as she had not met with for many a long day, and, wanderer as she was, there were moments when rest was very pleasant to her. "'as the most hardened Arab that ever careered across the desert on a camel "'likes to repose sometimes under the date trees "'or walk into the bazaars. "'So Joss's tents were pleasant to her. "'She hung up her weapons and warmed herself by his fire. "'The halt in that restless life was inexpressibly soothing. "'So she tried with all her might to please everybody.' and we know that she was eminent in the art of giving pleasure. Even in that little interview in the garret, she had won back much of Joss's goodwill. After a week, he was her sworn slave and frantic admirer. He didn't go to sleep after dinner as usual. He drove out with Becky in his carriage. He held little parties and invented festivities to do her honor. "'Tapeworm, who had abused her so cruelly, came to dine with Joss, and then came every day to pay his respects to Becky. Poor Emmy, who was never very talkative, and more glum and silent than ever after Dobbin's departure, was quite forgotten. The French minister was as much charmed with Becky as Tapeworm, whilst the German ladies were delighted with her cleverness and wit.' When it became known that she was of an ancient family, and that her husband was a colonel and governor, only separated from his lady by a trifling difference, nobody thought of refusing to receive her in the very highest society. The ladies were even more ready to swear eternal friendship for her than they had been for Amelia. Joss's house had never been so pleasant. Rebecca sang... She played, she laughed, she talked in two or three languages. She brought everybody to the house, and she made Joss believe that it was his own great talents and wit which gathered society around him. As for Emmy, who found herself no longer mistress of her own house, except when the bills were to be paid, Becky soon discovered the way to soothe her. She talked to her perpetually about Major Dobbin, Declaring her admiration for that excellent gentleman, and telling Emmy that she had behaved most cruelly to him, Emmy defended her conduct and her religious principles, saying that a woman once da 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 -da, etc etc, and to such an angel as George was married for ever. But she had no objection to hearing the major praised by Becky, and brought the conversation round to Dobbin twenty times a day. Becky easily won the favour of Georgie and the servants. Amelia's maid supported the Major, and was reconciled to Becky as his champion. In the evening, when Miss Payne was brushing Amelia's hair, she always put in her word for that dear good Major Dobbin. Amelia did not object to this either. She made George write to Dobbin constantly, and persisted in sending Mamma's kind love in a postscript and as she looked at her husband's portrait, it no longer reproached her. Perhaps she reproached it. Now William was gone. Emmy was not very happy after her heroic sacrifice. She was very distracted, nervous, and silent. The family had never known her so peevish. She grew pale and ill, "'She used to try to sing certain songs which the Major liked, and as she warbled them in the drawing-room, "'she would break off in the middle and walk into her room and there, no doubt, take refuge in the miniature of her husband. "'Some books remained, after Dobbins' departure, with his name written in them, a German dictionary, a guidebook, and one or two other volumes.' Emmy put these on the drawers where she placed her workbox, her Bible, and prayer book, under the pictures of the two Georges. And the Major, having left his gloves behind, it is a fact that Georgie, rummaging in his mother's desk some time afterwards, found the gloves neatly folded up and put away not caring for society. Emmy's chief pleasure in the summer evenings was to take long walks with Georgie, while Rebecca was left to the Society of Joseph. Then the mother and son used to talk about the Major in a way which even made the boy smile. She told him that she thought Major William was the best man in the world, the gentlest and kindest, the bravest and humblest, She told him again how they owed everything to that kind friend's care, how he had befriended them through their misfortunes and watched over them, how all his comrades admired him, though he never spoke of his own gallant actions, how Georgie's father trusted him beyond all other men. When your papa was a little boy, he often told me that it was William who defended him against a tyrant at their school, and their friendship never ceased from that day until the last. By the way, Mrs. Becky had got a miniature too hanging up in her room, to the surprise and amusement of most people, and the delight of the original, who was no other than our friend Jos. "'On first coming to visit the Sedleys, arriving with a remarkably small, shabby kit, "'she was perhaps ashamed of the meanness of her trunks, "'and often spoke about her baggage left behind at Leipzig. "'When a traveller talks to you perpetually about the splendour of his absent luggage, "'beware, he is an imposter. "'Neither Joss nor Emmy knew this important maxim.' It seemed to them of no consequence whether Becky had fine clothes in invisible trunks, but as her present supply was exceedingly shabby, Emmy gave her clothes, or took her to the milliner and fitted her out. There were no more torn collars now, or faded silks. The rouge pot was suspended, and so, for the most part, was the brandy and water. At last, the much-bragged-about boxes arrived from Leipzig, not by any means large or splendid, nor did Becky appear to take any dresses or ornaments from them. But out of one, which contained a mass of papers, she took a picture with great glee which she pinned up in her room and to which she introduced Joss. It was the pencil portrait of a gentleman riding on an elephant.' "'God bless my soul! Oh, it is my portrait!' Joss cried out. It was he indeed, blooming in youth and beauty in a nankeen jacket of the cut of 1804. It was the old picture that used to hang in Russell Square. "'I bought it,' said Becky, in a voice trembling with emotion. "'I went to the sale to see if I could be of any use to my kind friends.' "'I have never parted with that picture. "'I never will.' "'Won't you?' "'Oh!' Joss cried with rapture and satisfaction. "'Do you? Do you really value it for my sake?' "'You know I do,' said Becky. "'But why look back? "'It is too late now.' "'That evening's conversation was delicious for Joss. "'Emmy went to bed, very tired and unwell, Jos and his fair guest had a charming tete-a-tete, and his sister could hear, as she lay awake in her room, Rebecca singing to Jos the old songs of eighteen fifteen. It was June, and the high season in London. Jos used to read extracts from his newspaper to the ladies during breakfast. Every week there was a full account of military movements in which Jos was especially interested. On one occasion, he read that the veteran colonel, Sir Michael O'Dowd, K.C.B., with his lady and sister and his regiment, had landed at Gravesend to a loudly cheering crowd. On a second occasion, Joss read a brief announcement. Major Dobbin had joined the regiment at Chatham. Following that, there were accounts of presentations at the drawing-room of Colonel Sir Michael O'Dowd K.C.B., Lady O'Dowd, and Miss Glorvina O'Dowd. Dobbin was made a lieutenant-colonel, for old Marshal Tiptoff had died during the passage from Madras, and Colonel Sir Michael O'Dowd was promoted to the rank of Major General. Amelia had been made aware of some of these movements— William had written to George, and even once or twice to her, but in a manner so cold that the poor woman felt that she had lost her power over him. He was free, and she was wretched. The memory of his countless services and affectionate regard now rebuked her day and night. She brooded over those recollections, saw the purity and beauty of the affection with which she had trifled, and reproached herself for having flung away such a treasure. It was gone indeed. William had spent it all out. He loved her no more, he thought, as he had loved her. He never could again that sort of regard which he had proffered for so many faithful years can't be flung down and shattered and mended so as to show no scars. The little heedless tyrant had destroyed it. No, William thought, again and again. I deluded myself. Had she been worthy of the love I gave her, she would have returned it long ago. It was a foolish mistake. Isn't the whole course of life made up of such? And suppose, suppose I had won her. Should I not have been disenchanted the day after my victory? Why pine or or be ashamed of my defeat? The more he thought of this long passage of his life, the more clearly he saw his deception. I'll go into harness again and do my duty. I will see that the buttons of the recruits are bright.' and that the sergeants make no mistakes in their accounts. I will dine at mess and listen to the Scotch surgeon telling his stories. And when I am old and broken, I will go on half-pay, and my old sisters shall scold me. I shall find out what there is at the play tonight. Tomorrow we cross by the Batavere. He made the above speech, pacing up and down the quay at Rotterdam. The Batavir was lying in the basin. He could see the place on the quarter-deck where he and Emmy had sat on the happy voyage out. What had that little Mrs. Crawley been going to say to him? "'Tomorrow we will put to sea, and return to England, home and duty!' After June, all the little court society of Pumpernickel used to make for a hundred watering places, where they drank at the wells, rode upon donkeys, and idled away the summer. The reigning family took to the waters, or retired to their hunting lodges. With them went the court doctor, for this season was the most productive time of his practice, and he was going to ostend. His patient, Jos was a regular milk cow to the doctor, who easily persuaded Mr. Sedley to pass the summer at that hideous seaport town. Emmy did not care where she went. Georgie jumped at the idea of a move. As for Becky, she came as a matter of course in Jos's fine barouche. She might have misgivings about whom she should meet at Ostend, who might tell ugly stories, but... Bah! She was strong enough to hold her own. It would take a strong storm to shake off Jos. That incident of the picture had finished him. So the party were lodged in an exceedingly dear and uncomfortable house at Ostend. There Amelia began to take baths for her health, and those scores of people who knew Becky cut her. "'Yet Mrs. Osborne, who walked about with her, and who knew nobody, was not aware of this, "'and Becky never thought fit to tell her. "'Some of Mrs. Rawdon Crawley's acquaintances, however, acknowledged her readily, "'perhaps more readily than she would have desired.' Among those were Major Loder and Captain Rook, who might be seen on the dyke smoking and staring at the women, and who speedily got an introduction to the hospitable table of Joseph Sedley. They burst into the house whether Becky was at home or not, walked into Mrs. Osborne's drawing room, called Joss Old Buck, invaded his dinner table, and laughed and drank for long hours there. "'What can they mean?' asked Georgie. "'who did not like these gentlemen. "'I heard the Major say to Mrs. Crawley yesterday, "'No, no, Becky, you shan't keep the old back to yourself. "'We must have the dice in, or dammy I'll split. "'What could the Major mean, Mamma? "'Major, don't call him Major,' Emmy said. "'I'm sure I can't tell what he meant.' "'His presence and that of his friend "'filled her with terror and aversion.' They paid her tipsy compliments, they leered at her over the dinner-table, and the captain made her advances that filled her with sickening dismay. She would not see him unless she had George by her side. Rebecca, to do her justice, never let either of these men remain alone with Amelia. Though the innocent creature was not aware of the rascals' designs upon her, yet she felt a horror and uneasiness in their presence, and longed to fly. She entreated Jos to go. Not he. He was slow of movement, tied to his doctor and perhaps to some other leading strings. At last Amelia took a great resolution, made the great plunge. She wrote a letter. "'a letter about which she did not speak to anybody, "'which she carried herself to the post under her shawl, "'and she looked very much flushed and agitated when Georgie met her. "'She did not come out of her room after her return from her walk. "'Becky thought it was Major Loder and the captain who had frightened her. "'She mustn't stay here,' Becky thought. "'She must go away, the silly little fool.' "'She is still whimpering after that gabby of a dead husband. "'She shan't marry either of these men. Oh, "'It's too bad of Loder. "'Oh, no, no. "'She shall marry the bamboo cane. "'I'll settle it this very night.' "'So Becky took a cup of tea to Amelia in her room "'and found that lady in a most melancholy condition. "'She laid down the cup. "'Thank you,' said Amelia. "'Listen to me, Amelia.' "'said Becky, surveying her with a sort of contemptuous kindness. "'I want to talk to you. "'You must go away from here and from the impertinences of these men. "'I won't have you harassed by them, and they will insult you if you stay. "'I tell you, they are rascals. "'Never mind, never mind how I know them. "'I know everybody. Jos can't protect you. "'He is too weak and wants a protector himself. "'You are no more fit to live in the world than a babe-in-arms.' "'You must marry, or you and your precious boy will go to ruin. "'You must have a husband, you fool. "'And one of the best gentlemen I ever saw "'has offered for you a hundred times, "'and you have rejected him, "'you silly, heartless, ungrateful little creature.' "'I, I, tr- I tried. "'I tried my best. "'Indeed, I did, Rebecca,' said Amelia. "'But I, I couldn't forget.' "'And she finished the sentence by looking up at the portrait. "'Couldn't forget him.' cried out Becky, that selfish humbug, that cockney dandy, that padded booby, who had neither wit nor manners nor heart, and it was no more to be compared to your friend with the bamboo cane than you are to Queen Elizabeth. Why, the man was weary of you, and would have jilted you if Dobbin had not forced him to keep his word. He never cared for you. "'He used to sneer about you to me time after time "'and made love to me the week after he married you.' (gasps) "'It's false! It's false!' cried out Amelia, starting up. "'Look there, you fool!' Becky said, still with provoking good humour, "'and taking a little paper out of her belt, she flung it into Emmy's lap. "'You know his handwriting. He wrote that to me, "'wanted me to run away with him, gave it to me the day before he was shot.' and served him right. Emmy did not hear her. She was looking at the letter. It was that which George had put into the bouquet and given to Becky on the night of the Duchess of Richmond's Ball, in which the foolish young man had asked her to fly. Emmy's head sank down, and for almost the last time in this story she wept. She gave way to her emotions as Becky stood and regarded her. Who shall analyze those tears, and say whether they were sweet or bitter? Was she most grieved because the idol of her life was tumbled down, or indignant that her love had been despised, or glad because the barrier was removed between her and a new, real affection? There is nothing to forbid me now. I may love him with all my heart now. "'Oh, I will, I will, if only he will forgive me!' I believe it was this feeling that rushed over all the others in that gentle little bosom. Indeed, she did not cry so much as Becky expected. Becky soothed and kissed her, a rare mark of sympathy. She patted her head and said, "'And now, let us get pen and ink and write him to come. "'I I wrote to him this morning.' (laughs) Emmy said, blushing, and Rebecca screamed with laughter. Two mornings after this little scene, although the day was rainy and gusty, and Amelia had had an exceedingly wakeful night, listening to the wind roaring and pitying all travellers, yet she got up early and insisted upon taking a walk on the dyke with Georgie. There she paced as the rain beat into her face, and she looked out westward across the dark sea and the swollen billows. I hope he won't cross in such weather, Emilia said. I bet ten to one he does, the boy answered. Look, mother, there's the smoke of the steamer. But though the steamer was under way, he might not be on board. He might not have got the letter. He might not choose to come. "'A hundred fears poured through her heart. "'The boat came into sight. "'Georgie had a telescope and got the vessel under view "'in the most skilful manner, "'commenting on the approach of the steamer as she came, "'nearer and nearer. Amelia's heart was in a flutter. "'She tried to look through the telescope over George's shoulder, "'but she could make nothing of it. "'Oh, how she does, Pitch!' said George. "'There goes a wave slap over her bows.' there's only two people on deck besides the steersman there's a man lying down and a, a chap in a cloak with oh it's dob it's dob by jingo he flung his arms round his mother of course he would come what else could he do but come she knew he would come as they went to meet the ship at the landing place emmy's knees trembled so that she could scarcely run she would have liked to kneel down and say her prayers of thanks right there. Oh, she thought, she would be all her life saying them. It was such a bad day that when the vessel came alongside the quay there were no idlers around. As the gentleman in the old cloak stepped on to shore, there was scarcely anyone to see what took place, which was briefly this. A lady in a dripping white bonnet and shawl went up to him and in the next minute she had altogether disappeared under the folds of the old cloak, and was kissing one of the hands with all her might, whilst the other, I suppose, was engaged in holding her to his heart, which her head just about reached, and in preventing her from falling, she was murmuring something about, oh, forgive, dear, dearest William, kiss, kiss, and so forth, and in fact— went on under the cloak in an absurd manner. When Emmy emerged from it, she still kept tight hold of one of William's hands and looked up in his face. It was full of sadness and tender love and pity. She understood its reproach and hung down her head. "'It was time you sent for me, dear Amelia,' he said. "'You will never go again, William?' Never," he answered, and pressed the dear little soul once more to his heart. Georgie danced round the couple and performed many facetious antics as he led them up to the house. Jos wasn't up yet. Becky was not visible, though she looked at them through the blinds. Georgie ran off to see about breakfast. Emmy began to undo the clasp of William's cloak. And we will, if you please, go with George and look after breakfast for the colonel. The vessel is in port. He has got the prize he has been trying for all his life. The bird has come in at last. There it is, with its head on his shoulder, billing and cooing close up to his heart, with soft, outstretched, fluttering wings. This is what he has asked for every day and hour, for eight days years. Here it is. The summit. The end. The last page of the third volume. God bless you, honest William. Farewell, dear Amelia. Grow green again, tender little parasite, round the rugged old oak to which you cling. Perhaps it was compunction towards Amelia, who had been the first in life to defend her, Perhaps it was a dislike of such sentimental scenes, but Rebecca never presented herself before Colonel Dobbin and his bride. Particular business, she said, took her to Bruges, and only Georgie and his uncle were present at the marriage ceremony. When it was over, Mrs. Becky returned, just for a few days, to comfort the solitary bachelor, Joseph Sedley. "'He preferred a continental life,' he said, "'and declined to join the new household of his sister and her husband. Emmy was very glad to think that she had written to her husband "'before she read that letter of George's.' "'I knew it all along,' William said. "'But could I use that weapon against the poor fellow's memory? "'It was that which made me suffer so when when you... "'I'll never speak of that day again.' Never, Emmy cried out, so contrite and humble that William turned the conversation to Glorvina and dear old Peggy O'Dowd, with whom he was sitting when the letter of recall reached him. If you hadn't sent for me, he added with a laugh, who knows what Glorvina's name might be now. At present it is Glorvina Posky, Now, Mrs. Major Posky, she took him on the death of his first wife, having resolved never to marry out of the regiment. Lady O'Dowd is also so attached to it that, she says, if anything were to happen to Mick, the dad, she'd come back and marry some of them. But the Major General is quite well, and lives in great splendor at O'Dowdston, with a pack of beagles, and is the first man of his county. When Colonel Dobbin quitted the service after his marriage, he rented a pretty little country place in Hampshire, not far from Queen's Crawley, where Sir Pitt and his family now resided. Lady Jane and Mrs. Dobbin became great friends. There was a perpetual crossing of pony chaises between the hall and the evergreens, the Colonel's place. Lady Jane was godmother to Mrs. Dobbin's child which was christened by the Reverend James Crawley, who succeeded his father in the living. And a pretty close friendship grew between the two lads, George and Rawdon, who hunted and shot together in the vacations, went to the same college at Cambridge, and quarreled with each other about Lady Jane's daughter, with whom they were both, of course, in love. Mrs. Rawdon Crawley's name was never mentioned by either family. "'For wherever Mr. Joseph Sedley went, she travelled likewise, "'and that infatuated man seemed to be her slave. "'The colonel's lawyers informed him "'that this brother-in-law had taken out insurance on his life, "'probably to raise money to pay debts. "'He took prolonged leave of absence from the East India House, "'and indeed his infirmities were daily increasing.' On hearing the news about the life insurance, Amelia, in a good deal of alarm, entreated her husband to go to Brussels, where Jos then was, and inquire into the state of his affairs. The colonel left home with reluctance, for he was deeply immersed in his history of the Punjab, which still occupies him, and much alarmed about his little daughter, whom he idolizes, and who was just recovering from the chickenpox. He went to Brussels, and found Jos living at one of the enormous hotels in the city. Mrs. Crawley occupied another suite in the same hotel. She had her own carriage, gave entertainments, and lived in a very genteel manner. The colonel sent Jos a message through his valet, and Jos begged the colonel to come and see him that night, when Mrs. Crawley would be at a soiree and they could meet alone. Dobbin found his brother-in-law pitiably infirm and dreadfully afraid of Rebecca, though eager in his praises of her. She had tended him through a series of unheard-of illnesses with admirable fidelity. She had been a daughter to him. But, but, oh, for God's sakes, do come and live near me and see me sometimes, <laughs> whimpered the unfortunate man. We can't, Joss, said Dobbin. "'Considering the circumstances, Amelia can't visit you.' "'I swear to you on the Bible that she is as innocent as the child, as spotless as your own wife.' "'It may be so,' said the colonel gloomily, "'but Emmy can't come to you. "'Be a man, Jos. Break off this connection. Come home to your family. "'We hear your affairs are involved.' "'Involved!' cried Joss. "'Who has told such lies? "'All my money is invested most advantageously. "'Mrs. Crawley, that—well, that is, I mean—well, it is laid out for the best interest.' (laughs) "'You are not in debt, then? "'Why did you insure your life?' I've thought of well a little present to her in case anything happened, and and you know, my my health is so delicate. I intend to leave all my money to you, and I can I can spare it, indeed I can, cried out Joss. The Colonel besought Joss to fly, to go back to India, where Mrs. Crawley could not follow, to do anything to break off a connection which might have fatal consequences to him. Jos clasped his hands and agreed. He would go back to India. He would do anything. Only, only he must have time, and they mustn't say anything to Mrs. Crawley. She'd, she'd, she'd kill me if she knew. Oh, you don't know what a terrible woman she is. The poor wretch said. Then why not come away with me? Asked Dobbin. But Jos had not the courage. Dobbin must go now. He said. Becky might come in and Dobbin left, full of forebodings. He never saw Jos more. Three months afterwards, Joseph Sedley died at Aix-la-Chapelle. It was found that all his property had been muddled away in speculations and bubble companies. All his assets were the two thousand pounds for which his life was insured, and which were left equally between his beloved sister Amelia and his friend and invaluable attendant during sickness rebecca who was appointed administrator the solicitor of the insurance company swore it was the blackest case that had ever come before him he thought of sending a commission to x to examine the death and the company withheld payment of the policy but mrs or Lady Crawley, as she styled herself, came to town at once with her solicitors and dared the company to refuse the payment. She triumphed, finally. The money was paid, and her character established. But Colonel Dobbin sent back his share of the legacy to the insurance office, and rigidly declined to hold any communication with Rebecca. She never was Lady Crawley, though she continued so to call herself. His Excellency, Colonel Rawdon Crawley, died of yellow fever at Coventry Island, most deeply beloved, six weeks before the death of his brother, Sir Pitt. The estate passed down to the young Sir Rawdon Crawley. He, too, has declined to see his mother, to whom he makes a liberal allowance, and who, besides, appears to be very wealthy— The baronet lives at Queen's Crawley with Lady Jane and her daughter. Rebecca, Lady Crawley, chiefly hangs about Bath and Cheltenham, where some excellent people consider her to be a most injured woman. She has her enemies. Who has not? Her life is her answer to them. She busies herself in works of piety. She goes to church, and her name is in all the charity lists. She is always having stalls at fancy fairs for the benefit of the destitute. Emmy, her children, and Colonel Dobbin, coming to London some time back, found themselves suddenly before her at one of these fairs. Becky cast down her eyes demurely and smiled as they started away from her, Emmy scurrying off with George, now a dashing young gentleman, and the Colonel seizing up his little Janey of whom he is fonder than anything in the world, fonder even than of his history of the Punjab. Fonder than he is of me, Emmy thinks with a sigh. But he never said a word to Amelia that was not kind and gentle, or thought of a want of hers that he did not try to gratify. Ah, yes, manitas manitatum. Which of us is happy in this world? Which of us has his desire, or having it is satisfied? Come, children, let us shut up the box and the puppets, for our play is played out.
0: The end. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock. executive producer Moses Neimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network.